Hello, listeners. Welcome to The Trip Diary, a below-the-radar podcast series that examines movement in urban space. I'm Steve Torrance with SFU's Van City Office of Community Engagement. In the before times, I graduated from the SFU Urban Studies program while doing research on the Vancouver Bike Share program and employer-based transit subsidies. Over the course of this series, we will explore how different commute modes impact daily life and why we need to think about transportation in our urban design. The trip diary was recorded on the unceded territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh peoples. I commute to work on public transit. I enjoy those moments sitting, looking out the window, watching the world slowly turn while listening to podcasts about urban life. When I was asked to make a miniseries, I knew I wanted to try and capture that listening experience. Equity is one of, if not the most important topic when it comes to urban planning and design. It has the potential to either uphold inequities or bridge them. Today, we are going to talk with Lauren McDonald and Sadia Tabasum, two SFU Urban Studies alum who wrote their theses on the experiences of recent migrants and women of color. I invited these guests because their research methods highlight the importance of qualitative research about listening to participants on their own terms. I hope that our conversations about equity inform how we experience the rest of the series. Our first guest is Lori McDonald. Her research method of mental mapping, with its focus on the direct experiences and memories of recent migrants to the region, asks us to re-examine learning about transit through the eyes of someone unfamiliar with our transportation system. It pushes back upon the idea that our public transit system makes intuitive sense, something that we may implicitly believe if we grew up in the region. I hope that you enjoy the series. Hi, and welcome aboard the Trip Diary. It's great to have you here, Lori McDonald. Can you first introduce yourself a bit? Sure, thank you, Steve. I'm, I'm happy to be here. Uh, my name is Lori McDonald, and first of all, I'm, I'm here on the unceded and stolen territories of the Squamish, Musqueam, and Tsleil-Waututh. And I am a, a white settler here in, in Vancouver. And for, for years, I think I've just been really thinking a lot about public transit and you know I think worked really hard to to make some investments in our region around public transit part of my experience in understanding transit in metro vancouver has been really advocating and and lobbying for the upass program which is a subsidized transit program for post secondary students thank you lori you wrote an incredibly creative and thoughtful thesis can you please describe what your thesis, Mapping Daily Mobility in Metro Vancouver, was about? Sure, thank you. Um, and I appreciate your analysis on it there. I was really lucky, first of all, I think, to have Noel Dick as a supervisor, who's 
he just has so much experience in sociology and anthropology. And so he let me have so much freedom to think about daily mobility and how it relates to people's experiences settling in the region. And so my thesis was about nine participants who were all on a pathway to, to immigration and they were studying in the hospitality industry and just really asking how do they develop and acquire the skills for their daily mobility. I approached it originally from the idea of like people are going to need to get to employment and that's kind of it. Like it's really just about getting from A to B. But I think what I what I found through that ethnographic fieldwork of you know interviewing people and traveling with them and having them draw out their maps of how they get around the region was that it was so much more than just getting from A to B. And it was so much more about just getting to employment. But really, it was about the entire process of their lives taking hold and becoming anchored in Metro Vancouver around, you know, what made them happy, what draw memories from places that they had previously lived, and just allowed them to sort of settle into the region in a way that I thought was really quite striking. What is mental mapping? Can you describe some of those maps for the listeners? Sure. So mental mapping for me was the name that I gave to the process of, of drawing out where somebody had been and traveling when they first arrived, and then traveling also when they uh, had been here for multiple years. So it was a tool that I used to get a sense of having something on paper that allowed us to both understand you know, what their, their daily routines were, what their routes were, where they wanted to go, where they did go. Why did you go down this qualitative route of mental mapping and traveling with your participants? What do these research techniques tell you that cannot have been done by something like a transportation survey, like a trip diary? Thanks, Steve. I, uh, I reflected on this quite a bit, and I still do, that I, I feel like a qualitative approach is kind of an equity approach in general, that it seeks to understand somebody's lived experience and it seeks to hear and see and, and witness their experience kind of firsthand and learn so much more about it that you would never learn from something like, as you mentioned, a, a trip diary. And I think part of the work I was doing was also really trying to get a sense of what is important to people and what has meaning. And when thinking about the settlement process into the region, you know, what could I learn from people through a qualitative approach and an ethnographic approach that I wouldn't have otherwise learned by devising a survey or taking quantitative data? What are guardrails and how does that affect people who plan their routes? So guardrails are uh, a term I think I stumbled across as I was writing this thesis. Coming back to your topic there of the mental map, like what is a mental map? I think a guardrail is something that lives in a mental map and it exists as a physical navigation tool. And so one of the ones that I was thinking about was one of the participants worked downtown and got lost. And, you know, like this one person was like getting lost was sort of anxiety inducing for them. And so called a friend on video chat and was like, you know, like, look for, you just need to find that one particular trash bin. That trash bin is the way you orient yourself back to getting to work. So that is one guardrail. And so I kind of saw them as these 
like handholds of familiarity that would allow people to make their way and like develop the memory that also helps them develop the confidence. And through that like memory and confidence of knowing how to travel, I really saw that development as people explained kind of a five-year timeline of, of arriving here and not having that knowledge and then developing it through experience. Now, I also used a couple other terms that were a little different than guardrails. They were the concept of a, of a social anchor or a foothold. And it's, again, it's kind of recognizing that our mobile lives are pervasive. They're not just like transportation isn't another place. It's the world that we live in. And so the foothold is that like sense of comfort along the way or kind of the memories or something that provides that positive sense of like a familiarity because I really did see that with the confidence and the comfort of people using the transit system and the transportation network, that that was what provided people with like a sense of calm and a sen- I think a sense of home that this was like their new place where they were going to live and that it was comfortable to them. You drew upon the work of Amit and Knowles, who view navigation skill as, quote, finding a way through the physicality of the world that demands deep knowledge, close attention, and the capacity for invention when things don't work in expected ways, end quote. Can you explain it more? What does it look like? And what does navigation skill look like for different people? Yeah, thanks. I think that navigation for different people was very different from what I found in the research. Some people had a sense of confidence and carefreeness about being able to just fumble out onto the SkyTrain and, you know, not know which way it was going, not know if they were going to end up in production way when they should have gotten off at Columbia Station and they were trying to get to Surrey and that the navigational skills that they had were about really just kind of making a mistake and improvising and figuring out how to correct their mistake and getting back on track. So that was sort of one approach. And then additionally, other people had really different experiences. So some people might have been much more anxious about how they were going to get to work on time. And, you know, Also, perhaps they didn't have a a data plan. And so navigation for them was about planning their route at home when they had access to the internet and taking a series of screenshots and, you know, clicking them off as they went and finding themselves in a steamy bus where they couldn't actually see out the window, you know, and needing to clear off the window and find the one superstore that they knew meant it was time for their stop next. But I think part of that navigation was that it is not an easy task. I think sometimes we take it for granted if we know and have lived in in a place that we have, you know, grown up in and and know it well, but that it's an accumulation and it takes a bit of time and it takes perhaps more thinking and resources than we might originally think about. Just to go back a bit, when you talked about how people brought their experiences from like the country that they were before coming to Vancouver. One thing that reminded me of, which I really enjoyed about your thesis was 
one of the participants, she said that when she was traveling with her sister, she always made sure to get off at Waterfront Station because she loved the building so much. <laughs> I did think about you multiple times as I kind of reread it <laughs> this week is that uh, it talks about North Vancouver a lot and it talks about the the shift of getting over to North Vancouver. And, you know, I think yeah, it's it's that subjective quality, I think, around tastes and desires and kind of aspirations that comes back to your question about why qualitative research. But exactly, somebody chooses a route because they really like the waterfront station and it's like a moment of beauty and joy in their life. And same thing with other routes. It's like, you know, there's probably a lot of research about why people take particular routes. Like, is it faster is it, you know, often is it cheaper or faster? And I think my research showed that it's not always that. It's like, are you going to get a chance to see the Fraser River from the SkyTrain? Because I love, you know, somebody really loved to see the view. Or is the route that you take going to give you that nostalgia of a winding road that you remember from India? Again, like that's why somebody likes a route. So yeah, it's, uh, I think there was a lot to learn there about how I think it's not just transportation, it's kind of like a, a fabric of living in a city. I think you really captured why I like your thesis so much. Not because it had a lot to do with North Van, but because it really pushed back against the urban planning mentality of how to move people in the quickest, most efficient manner possible between A and B. So how do people relate to different forms of transportation? For example, what was different for newcomers when it came to SkyTrain versus C-Bus versus bus? Yeah, thanks. I think uh, I titled some of the ways that people learn to travel in the region as along the line. And what I meant by that was that the SkyTrain was such a popular form of transportation and people really loved it. And it had a sense of ease that like, you know, as my thesis work grappled with the idea of like, do people need to feel comfortable and confident in their ability to travel around a region to like feel content and happy as they settle in into the area? And the SkyTrain was just a really big check mark, I think, on on that confidence and the ease because it was, you know, people love the view. They love how simple it is. They love how fast it is. The stations were easy to find. And people were like, I never take the bus. I avoid the bus at all costs because it's complicated. And so I think part of that relationship that you're talking about is that people with language barriers in my research struggled with the bus. And that was that they didn't understand the weekly schedules versus the weekend schedules. They um, often didn't understand some of the signage they didn't understand what the difference was between the night bus and when it switched to night bus. And I know that that's something that's changed since I did the research, that there's been more signage and understanding on how to use the night bus. But the uh, there was some negative feedback about the bus. People just sometimes generally thought that it was kind of time consuming and that not everybody loved the idea of the sort of stop and go nature of it. You mentioned a few different things. The confusing nature that buses can be if English is not your first language. 
the changing in schedules with like weekdays, weekends, night buses, and as well, previous perspectives of the safety of buses. Do you have any policy recommendations that TransLink or municipalities could do to help make buses more welcoming for newcomers? Yeah, well, I think I have a couple policy recommendations, and and some of them just uh, go to the data collection. And I'm not sure how if this has changed or not, but when I did my thesis, the regional trip diary didn't collect travel pattern behavior on the weekends. And so the people who were in my study were working in the service and hospitality industry with weekend shifts, holiday shifts, late night shifts, really early morning shifts. And so that doesn't really speak to your question on the buses themselves, but it does speak to the sort of need to collect data on who's riding the buses on the weekends. Yeah, I mean, I think generally there's a lack of understanding about the national scope of public transit. And so that's also not necessarily to your question about just buses, so we can come back to it. But the national scope and the potential for federal oversight and identification of the real importance about public transit as a component of settlement into a new urban area, I think I would love to see federal interest and federal funding and and federal care and attention. Because I think what this research showed and what much research has shown is that people with lower incomes are really transit dependent. And it's more common that when you don't have access to the resources for a personal vehicle that you're getting around on, on public transit. I think there's many great settlement services and agencies in the region. And I don't know the extent to which they offer orientation services to newcomers, but I think that is a really great opportunity for investment in making the buses feel both comfortable and and kind of understandable. And it it really speaks to the idea that, and what I kind of learned in the research is that travel is a real social experience. That was a surprise to me that I hadn't really thought about because I didn't see it in a lot of the other literature around the sort of the network of learning that people are part of. And so they learn how to be comfortable with the bus system when a friend shows them or when a friend tells them about something or when somebody takes them on a trip to sort of pass that barrier of uncertainty. And so I think one of my recommendations is just to really invest in, and bolster in both officially the way that somebody can have access to some support for learning how to use the system. But then also like people felt comfortable on the system because the person opened the door for them or the bus driver was really friendly and let them off when they didn't have a stop because, you know, like they were on a night bus that didn't realize they had, didn't have a stop. So part of it is also just like to one another. It's that the collective nature of being out in the world is it really provided a sense of welcoming and kind of belonging for people who were new when somebody showed them how to use the compass machine at the SkyTrain station or when somebody told them about how the different routes work. The settlement experience is very mobile and it includes temporary employment and temporary housing and a lot of shifting. And so to take away the cost factor from those equations, I think is dignified and it is a, a justice approach to supporting people arriving in this region. And 
I had stumbled across the Fresh Voices report, which is a, a youth report on immigrant and refugees coming into Metro Vancouver. And they call for the same thing, which is free transit for immigrants and refugees. And absolutely, like I, I love it. And I mean, you know, Steve, I would obviously go further than that. And I would say like my dream and my sort of utopian vision is that transit access is free and we're able to, you know, rebuild a transit system post pandemic, provide people with sustainable options, get cars off the road. So I would, I would go to the wall on that one and, and continue to advocate for free transit. What is the process whereby people first start developing their routes? How did people learn about new routes and expand their transportation network? Learning new routes is quite dependent on where to go and where they need to go and some of the basic requirements of a transit system. So how do they get to their job? How do they get to where they need to buy groceries? What is the route to school? And so those ones, you know, I think were quite expected. They were things like Google Maps, and there's a, a suite of transit apps that people used. And so um, whether that was, I'm going to probably forget them all, but basic mobile apps, primarily Google Maps. And, you know, that was definitely part of it. What I saw was that people really shared a lot of information about where the other places are that somebody who's new here would want to go. And so whether that was through seeing their friends' stories or, or posts on social media and Instagram, you know, it's probably closed now, but seeing Quarry Rock and Deep Cove or seeing uh, Bunsen Lake, Belcara, the Tulip Festival in Abbotsford, some of the places that... Um, people, you know, share on social media, those, the development of that kind of inspiration to travel, and then also the means and, and how to do it was really amongst friends and amongst social networks. And it was about, you know, if somebody knew that a friend was coming to town, then they would want to show them around and take them. Or if it was about getting to Harris and Hot Springs, it was, like, you know, car sharing or, um, ride sharing or going with taking somebody if you had access to a vehicle. And so, yeah, I think uh, like, again, sort of cumulative approach and stepping one's toe a little bit further into the area of the unknown, because people did have that sense of uncertainty and confusion and, you know, fear, I think about getting lost and fear about not knowing how to get home. And so some of that was about, you know, talking to friends and it was of a social network that I hadn't really thought about too much before doing the research, which maybe lets me share one story if I can share one story. Uh, so one of the ones that I thought was funny was that, you know, to your question there, someone's like, oh, I heard that Maple Ridge is really beautiful. Maybe I can go to Maple Ridge. And one of the participants got dropped off in Maple Ridge from a friend who was on their way to Alberta and then <laughs> was couldn't access data on their phone and was basically stranded in Maple Ridge. And so they called a taxi, the taxi picked them up and was, you know, this, this participant also was like, and the taxi driver was really nice, like to save me money. The taxi driver just suggested that I get dropped off at a, at a SkyTrain station. And then the taxi driver also drew me a map of how to get home. So that kind of like support and care 
I thought was really, really striking and really lovely. It's a kind of a shared struggle for people. And maybe, maybe there's a sense of understanding because you know, you've been in that situation. So you're willing to, to help somebody else out so that they don't have to have that struggle alone. My last question for you, is there anything that I didn't ask that you would like to add to the conversation? After I did my thesis is I did um, something called the Dignity Institute with Dr. Destiny Thomas and the Thrivance Group. And they do a lot of work around, they've developed a, a dignity quotient. And some of that is a spinoff from a public health approach to understanding well-being and subjective well-being. And I think that there's still a lot of really great work that can happen looking at transit and understanding how it provides people with that sense of dignity when they are settling in a new region. And I'm, you know, for this example, I'm speaking to people who are newcomers and how a relief of the suffering of a, of a tough transit system can be something that supports them systemically. And how, um, you know, one of Dr. Thomas's quotients in, in their dignity quotient is a sense of home. And so I've been thinking a lot about a sense of home for people and how being able to go wherever they want, um, whether that means just like taking a bus to sit by a river, those things are really important. And I think that they are what I would aim for in a transportation system that was supportive. Well, thank you, Steve. It's been a pleasure. And um, yeah, it's been a while since we've talked about this. So I, I really appreciate it. And I appreciate hearing your questions because I, you know, we've, we've had these conversations before. So it's great to come back to you. Train to King George, please keep moving into the train to allow others behind you to board. I had never met Sadia Tabasum before, but I thought her thesis title, Embodied Fear, Perceived Safety, and transit-based mobility among women of color in Metro Vancouver was so intriguing, I messaged her for an advanced copy before it got published. It was a fantastic read, and I wanted to discuss her research more because it pushes back against the idea of universal experiences. If there's some things that we can only know by experiencing them, then how can we research it? How can we know something? Often, social scientists quantify those experiences. How safe do you feel on transit between one and five? Sadia takes another route, one which emphasizes that those experiences can only be understood on their own terms. Body mapping allows for storytelling, and while the researcher themselves can never truly be taken out of the narrative, it is rare for me to read research which centers women of color so well, letting them, as much as possible, tell and share their own stories. Thank you so much for being here, and welcome aboard a Trip Diary. It is great to have you here, Sadia Tabasum. Can you please introduce yourself a bit? Sure. Thank you, Steve, for having me. I like to think of myself as an artist and an innovator, uh, but mostly I'm an avid listener and a storyteller. And I love stories because the power that they have and I think I, I do a much better job when I write or I paint to tell my stories than when I speak. But here we are. So I'm speaking to you currently from Dhaka in Bangladesh, which is where I grew up. My background is in architecture, which I studied in upstate New York. And since then, I've worked 
basically in various roles within the construction industry in the U.S., in Bangladesh, as well as in Vancouver briefly while I was there. So most recently, my work was with the Mass Rapid Transit Project here in Dhaka, which is the first elevated light rail system here. And it's currently under construction. But I did that briefly before leaving and going to Vancouver to join the Urban Studies program there at SFU. So yes, that's me in a nutshell. I've always been passionate about cities and about equity and social justice. And my current projects are about promoting equity in transportation planning and implementation here in Dhaka. Sadia, your thesis, Embodied Fear, Perceived Safety, and Transit-Based Mobility Among Women of Color in Metro Vancouver really impacted me. I loved your use of body mapping and what it means to connect the body and identity to transportation. So first, let me say congratulations, Sadia, on your successful thesis defense. And second, can you describe what your thesis was about? Sure, I would love to. So yes, it, it was about exploring how women of color experience the public transit system in relation to their perceptions of safety while they're occupying the transit system and their fear of harassment or violence. So I essentially interviewed remotely five students at SFU and they all, they identified as women of color who are completely reliant on public transit for getting around within Metro Vancouver. And the novelty, I guess, with the study that I conducted was the methodology and the way I used qualitative methods in combination with this exercise that's called the body map storytelling exercise. And I facilitated that exercise in order to understand how participants described the way that their bodies were facing challenges in their urban mobilities using public transit. So we can obviously talk more about the methods and what that entailed, but um, it was a very, very rewarding process for me as a student researcher and just a very, very insightful project to be a part of. So here, body mapping is something which people visually draw out. For our listeners, would you be able to describe what a typical body map would look like? Sure, yeah. So body map storytelling is an exercise where a person draws an image on a sheet of paper by hand. And in their drawing, they try to describe their views and their thoughts and emotions about themselves and the rest of the world. So this image that they're creating is their body map. And typically there's a facilitator who gives prompts or asks questions, which the participant responds to by drawing or writing. And once their body maps are drawn, the participant is asked to speak about what they drew and why, and essentially to share their stories with others using the body map as a point of reference. So that's the storytelling component of the exercise. Now, as a research method, this really allows a person to draw upon their sensory experiences, which I think is such a cool aspect of autoethnography or research that explores ethnographical things. But basically, when people are drawing things that they've seen, heard, touched, 
So they're drawing upon their sensory experiences. They're not necessarily doing it in a in a way that a traditional recount of these experiences would entail. So it's like saying, Steve, can you please describe what happened when you were at that bus stop? So the way that you might describe that experience verbally would be probably chronological based on the way you might have experienced them or in some other way structured by the the person asking you the question even or the platform on which you're sharing that response or in many ways it might be constricted by those things but when a person is just allowed to draw that experience things often surface that even that person might not have necessarily realized at the time and through the process of actually speaking about their drawing later on this has been seen through studies that use this method that people start really seeing themselves not only as like a biological entity that is exposed to the senses of hearing and sight and smell but also as a social being that lives in a community and is therefore exposed to the social norms and the prejudices and inequities within that society so they start to reveal these realizations about themselves and their bodies by participating in this exercise so i think that's where there's a real value in methods like this that are alternative and up and coming i feel like your body mapping research lends itself particularly well to this topic of equity and transportation is there something about this research method that lets you learn from the subject differently from, say, quantitative methods? You have talked about why this works so well as a qualitative method, but can you explain why it makes it different from a more survey-based research? Right. Well, when I think of quantitative data, I'm thinking about a survey that would kind of ask for a person to report on things like their age, or race, gender, sexual orientation, etc. And then it would also perhaps ask for other things like if I were to essentially structure my research using quantitative methods, I might have been asking for these terms because I'm looking for a relationship between mobility and race and safety and, and these kinds of topics. So if I were to structure a questionnaire like that, see it's like I'm getting hung up on the thought itself of how crazy that would be because I'm essentially asking the participant to not only make the connection between their race and gender with the prejudices and the stereotypes that they're often facing or the way that they're being discriminated against or the harassment that they're facing on transit. I'm not only asking them to make those connections on their own with no sort of guidance on on what that would mean for this study or for them i'm also taking them away i'm removing them from the outcomes of this process of the study itself so having a quantitative method it really detaches a participant from what they are contributing to a study or a research project and in contrast a qualitative method allows the participant to feel a lot more part of the research process a lot more a part of or in charge of the research design or where it's going because they're able to almost direct the way that it's going to go or what questions I'm going to ask after what they just shared with me 
So it's really led by the participant, which I think is the right way to move forward, especially when we're trying to find out how we can make cities better for everyone. What is mobility justice and what does it mean to look at it? And this is a quote, through the scale of the human body. Thank you for asking me that. (laughs) So I'm going to start by referencing a collective, which is a gathering of people. They're based in the U.S. and they really do a bunch of work around the issues of mobility justice. So they define themselves as a multiracial collective that really centers the lived experiences of marginalized communities to address mobility justice and equity. So what they define mobility justice um, is the intersectional unsafeties and attacks that people from marginalized groups experience in public spaces, such as streets, transit systems, and the governance processes that lay claim to regulate those spaces. So yeah, by marginalized groups, they're referring to bodily features that sets different individuals apart. So things like their race, or people with disabilities, trans people, queer people, women, and the elderly. So these are all bodily aspects or aspects of one's identity that are based on bodily features that I mentioned. Or at least they they impact the human body and are displayed in the human body. So this collective called the Untokening, they discuss mobility justice, or sorry, the lack of mobility justice, to include the policing against Black bodies and the persecution and incarceration of undocumented families. And they also include gender-based harassment and violence and racism as parts of the mobility injustices that are occurring around the world. And things that are maybe a little more, I guess, uh, relevant right now, things like when a person is having to go to work, you know, they're forced to move or they're forced to go to work despite being sick or someone's not able to be safe at home, or getting priced out of your neighborhood, or if you have to travel two hours each way on public transit just to get to your place of work because you can't afford to live closer to your workplace. These are all falling within the realm of mobility and justice because these things mean that a person is not really able to freely and independently navigate their cities for whatever many reasons, right? Because of threats to their safety, because they're just not being able to, they don't have the access to the resources or the ability to make those kinds of decisions. So as far as the bodily scale is concerned, that's really what my my research focused on. So the first part um, I was describing where there is a bodily feature or an aspect of the human body, such as someone's race or ethnicity or even gender, things like that that are displayed on the human body. And when people, these prejudices or discrimination or even harassment or violence that are based around those bodily features that essentially inhibit them from navigating urban public spaces, that's what I'm really calling an obstacle to mobility justice at the bodily scale. What are geographies of fear? So geographies of fear is an academic concept 
that's used to better understand and discuss gender-based violence and harassment. But I want to discuss how it's actually a very real thing, and it's more like a map that is maintained and updated mentally by almost all women. And it's much more than just an abstract concept. So in short, a lot of women who are living and working in urban regions by themselves, they don't have cars and they rely on public transit to go pretty much anywhere because it still remains, despite options like Uber or taxis, it still remains the cheapest and the fastest way to get around on a regular basis. Now, a lot of studies show that women, particularly women of color, face more harassment and violence based on their gender and race while navigating public spaces in cities. So for women who are living in these spaces, they have to continue to use public transit despite being more afraid for their safety or knowing that they're more likely to be targets of harassment or violence. And in order to do this, they develop a lot of coping strategies because it's not it's not really possible to just avoid an entire physical space or an entire bus stop or a train station if it falls within your route. So in order to continue to occupy spaces where they either themselves personally have faced harassment or violence or places where they know someone else who have faced it, women begin to associate features of those spaces with their fear of harassment or with perceptions of safety. So instead of associating an entire space or a piece of infrastructure with their fear and just avoiding that space entirely, having things like, you know, observing things like signs of maintenance or the presence of lighting or signs of substance abuse, identifying features of a space based on factors like this really allows people, and especially women of color in this context, to determine for themselves how safe they feel in that space and how fearful they have to be for their safety. And their fear essentially takes on a geographical aspect. And that's really where these mental maps start to form, where these geographies of fear start to occur. Based on the outcomes of my study, where I asked participants if they had any direct recommendations for planners or policymakers, a lot of the suggestions they gave me was really based around hearing more stories from women of color. So really, first step is that we have to talk to individuals that we're identifying as women of color or visible minority women and just clumping together all of their experiences under one category. Because when we label a person as a visible minority or a person of color, we're really not taking into account how their nationality or their different race or ethnicities in relation to their gender and age and all of these other factors, how those things all play together and impact them and their mobilities, for example, or their lived experiences in any context. So the first recommendation would be to really break down the way we are collecting our data about who is safe, where, and how. Because we need to start asking people, not just based on what we think they are, which is the visible minority group, but really starting to break down 
what we mean by these terms. Another thing would be breaking down the way we conceive of a universal transit user. So this one type of individual whose safety is based on a certain set of things. That would be another thing that we really need to consider. And one of the things that I personally found as the researcher was there's really a big gap in terms of the way we try to understand the experiences of migrant women in particular. And they often don't rely on any alternative methods or anything that really explores and pushes the boundaries of, of knowledge. So we really need to start using more and more alternative methods and start asking not just who is safe or are our cities safer, but who is it safe for and who feels less safe as a consequence of the policies and the planning decisions that are being undertaken in the city. Even though all your participants were women, you also note that Black women have a unique experience compared to other women of color. Carrying on with this conversation that we're having, how does this unique experience manifest itself in the context of transportation? In transportation, similar to other urban public spaces, I think Black women's experiences are significantly different even compared to other women of color simply because of the dynamic that currently exists in the current political climate between Black people and Black communities and law enforcement, you know, specifically law enforcement authorities. And that's not to say that, you know, the types of racism that Black people encounter in society in general is obviously very different from the types of injustices that other people of color are facing. But in transit spaces specifically, because we think of transit spaces not really as space, we think of it as an in-between place where there's really no fixed point of authority or anyone to decide. It's almost seen as a place where if something unjust were to occur, it's not really the fault of the transit system or the place that's around an individual, but really Often it falls upon the transit user or the Black woman in this situation to feel guilty or shameful for not having taken a certain amount of steps or precautions to avoid that situation. So when we talk about Black women's experiences on transit, I think it comes back to their relationship with transit police, as well as how Black women and Black communities in general encounter significantly different and, you know, extreme forms of discrimination overall. So you've talked about this one a little bit, but I do want to ask a question in case there's more that you want to add. Why are some women of color not reporting incidents of harassment and violent crime while taking transit? And what does that say to the relationship between police and transportation? Well, a lot of the women that I interviewed for my study, when I say a lot of them, all of them really, they described their avoidance of the police, starting with, first of all, not knowing sometimes whether some of their experiences counted as harassment or assault, or basically whether the legal terms of harassment or assault could be used to describe what had just happened to them. So 
since they often didn't clearly delineate and categorize their own experiences, the mental block that was created for themselves was if I approached, if I even was able to track down a police officer at the right time who was able to help me, can I explain this to them where they a, take me seriously because there haven't been any physical injuries, for example, or there's no clear signs of an attack? So that's the first concern, whether or not they're going to be taken seriously. And the second is what's the outcome? So just filing a report is often not the end of the process. If you are the person who was the direct target or the victim of an incident of harassment or assault, you have to, first of all, make sure you're in a space where the attacker is not able to see you approaching the police and therefore aggravate the attacker even further. And then you have to find the words in that position, have all of your words together after just having been assaulted to put into words what has just happened to you to a person who is probably not going to believe you because there's no clear evidence. And then you have to do a series of follow-ups with the report you filed and the incident. You know, there's a bunch of paperwork that follows this and it's really not a clear or a short process with any clear outcomes. So in terms of people's avoidance of the police, this is what I found in the responses that I got from the participants in my study. What's a safety checklist and what are some examples? Um, so the term safety checklist was actually used by a participant. Like she used that term specifically. When I asked her to describe how she prepares for a commute that's based entirely on public transit in Vancouver. So the others, they describe these steps um, that they take such as things like just planning their commute at the right time. So just making sure all of their daily activities line up in such a way that they're able to time their commute exactly when and where they want it to be in order to avoid an unsafe environment. Or just packing light and wearing the right kinds of shoes, carrying things like keys and you know mundane objects that they can carry on, you know, on their body. So... Things like this, a lot of other participants, they describe these as part of their day-to-day routines, and they didn't really associate these steps with their safety, not at all with their race or gender, but some of them, they didn't even really associate it with their safety. It was just part of what they did in order to get ready to go out and take the bus to work or the train to school. And after describing these steps, they all shared how Maintaining these checklists can cause a lot of stress and it can actually take a toll on their emotional and mental health and incorporating them into their daily routines can create behaviors and patterns of mobility that they repeat over time that can in the long term negatively impact the way they view themselves as well as how they view their own position in the world in relation to other people. So these checklists are items that they describe as very necessary for them to feel safer as things that they have to get done, but also as things that really chained them and made them feel, you know, the stress of taking on this another another set of things that they have to do, another coping strategy. 
if I remember, at one point in your thesis, you mentioned that the top thing on the list for all your participants was making sure that they were not out late at night in an unfamiliar location when it came to transiting. Right, which was the point about timing their commutes down to the last second if they can and just micromanaging their trip as much as possible, which is obviously not possible in many situations because buses aren't always on time and um, you know bus and train schedules are often not exactly lining up. So it's this constant struggle to make sure you leave long enough, you have enough time to get to the bus stop, but also you don't leave so far ahead of time that you have to wait there in a dark and deserted bus stop. So it's this constant conflict of when do I start <laughs> my walk from this space to go to that space that I know is potentially unsafe. Another part of the checklist that I remember was some of the participants also brought headphones. Can you describe why they brought headphones? Sure. In terms of headphones, a couple of people mentioned that they like to have just one headphone, you know, in their ear and have the other one not plugged in because it's doing several things at the same time. One, it's signaling to people that they're not really interested in communicating. So they tend to do that as a sort of a gesture that shows that I'm not really here to talk and I don't want to engage. The other effect it has is it helps them feel enclosed in sort of a private space within the overall public space of that transit vehicle, which is the SkyTrain or the bus. So they're creating a little space for themselves where only they are able to hear something or respond to someone that they might be talking to. And in that process, they're feeling more enclosed and more safe. So in different ways, just the simple act of having a headphone, even if you're not listening to anything, can impact their perceptions of safety. A lot of the questions I've asked have been about fear and discrimination. But you also talked about how women of color also give each other support. You write, quote, all participants also said that seeing other women, especially other women of color, in an unsafe transit space makes them feel less fearful of harassment or violence, especially when they are traveling alone. End quote. What are the ways in which women of color give each other support? And are there any planning or policy implications of this? So from speaking to the participants and from being a woman of color myself, and from doing, you know, the legwork for the literature review for this project, my major takeaway, something I've learned in this process, has been just the presence of another woman in an unsafe public space can achieve a lot in terms of how other people in that space feel, because it signals that the fact that there is a woman occupying that space means it's not it's not barred to that individual and that could signal that more women can potentially occupy that space. So as a woman of color, that feeling is just intensified many fold when women of color are going out with other women of color and, and they're just enjoying the nightlife in the city or using the transit system late at night. Just seeing other women of color around them gives them this invisible sense of support that they're finding in each other. Now, what this means for 
for planning and policymaking is that, well, first of all, we have to acknowledge that this source of support exists and not only identify where it's happening and how it occurs, but also to start to create more and more spaces where women of color are able to provide this sort of support for each other. And I think when we begin to better understand these nuances in their behavior and their perceptions of safety, we can start to create those spaces where they are able to be there for each other and, you know, be that source of support. So my last question is, is there anything that I didn't ask you about that you think listeners should know? Sure. I think I'm going to just harp on about like the one or two things that I want any listener or any reader of the report I wrote to take away from any any kind of discussion like this, which is we have to start adjusting these core beliefs and mindsets that, that everyone seems to have accepted about things like safety. What does that mean when we say safety and well-being? And when we're talking about these terms and throwing them around, what does it really mean for different people? So that's, that's really one of the major takeaways. So for the transportation planning and implementation processes in Vancouver or elsewhere, really, thinking about what it means for a person to be safe or to feel safe can be so many different things based on who we're asking and who's listening, who they're speaking to, how safe they feel and sharing confidently what they really feel. So there's a lot of these things we have to really just break down. So that's the major one is instead of assuming that we're creating a safer space by following best practices or based on existing studies, we really need to reevaluate what safety means now currently in, in our current climate. And again, the last point I would mention is this disturbing term, which is a woman of color or a visible minority. And this is what I want to end on, which is I, <laughs> I don't see myself as a woman of color because I grew up in a country that's not predominantly white and I don't perceive of my own race as relative to a white person's. So when I was in Canada, sure, on the census reports, I might have been a visible minority woman, but that is not how I see myself. And I know that to be true for countless women um, out there living in urban regions in Canada and using the transit systems there. So there's this disconnect between how people see themselves and how their experiences are reflected on the national scale in terms of the data that's being generated. So the takeaway here is to not just assume that all visible minority women or all marginalized groups even are experiencing the same things or the same kinds of injustices and instead to speak to the people in these communities or who identify as people from marginalized groups to ask them what they think about these things and then go from there. The next station is Terminus Station, Waterfront. This concludes our first episode. I hope that as we continue with the series, we critically think about transportation and its role in the region. 
I thought it was interesting that both Lori and Sadia, when giving recommendations, talked about the need for a sense of belonging and support in transportation spaces. It is a reminder that if public transportation is not inclusive, if it is not welcoming, then it will not be used and its benefits will not be equally shared. Thank you, Lori McDonald, Sadia Tabasum, all the research participants, and to you, listeners, for joining me on this Equity Commute, the first installment of the Trip Diary mini-series. This episode is roughly one hour and two minutes. This is the same time it takes to go from Brentwood Town Center to Richmond Center, taking the number 25 bus, connecting at King Edward Station, and then heading south on the Canada Line. I hope you enjoyed the commute. Below the Radar is the Knowledge Democracy podcast created by SFU's Van City Office of Community Engagement. A special thanks to the team that created this series. Paige Smith, Melissa Roach, Kathy Feng, Aliyah Barty, and Alex Massey. Original music by Alex Massey. Sound design, editing, and mixing by Paige Smith and Kathy Feng. Series artwork by Kathy Feng. Many hands make light work. It has been a joy to work with all of you on this project. Head to the show notes to read up on some of the initiatives and examples mentioned in this episode. Stay tuned for the next installment of the series coming out on July 12th.